This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. people welcome to the next edition of stark reality my little podcast me being small change jim deer whatever you remember uh my guest this time around is sonito martinez sonito aka javier is a dj record collector dealer and a good friend top peoples he's originally from argentina has been living in la paz bolivia for many years we talk about chewing on cocoa leaves, distribution of records in South America, playing on sonaderos, aka sound systems in Mexico, living in Bolivia during the recent fascist coup and aftermath, and Javier gives us a great playlist of all Bolivian tracks from his vast collection of uh, records, 45s, all ripped. So check it out, interview and playlist from Sonido Martinez, here on Stark Reality. Chewing on some leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I never. Uh, we chew in Mexico, right? But not in yeah, the US. we were. We, I, we, you I had never, some. In, you had some in Mexico. Yeah. I never had the courage to take to the U.S. Well, I mean, probably for obvious reasons. I was when yeah. I was in Colombia. They had a cocoa flavored soda that uh oh, no. that obviously didn't make it to uh, the US but yeah it was fine i mean i don't think it was particularly <laughs> hallucinogenic in any way it was just soda but yeah it tasted fine but it is funny how that all gets like demonized but that that's like a thing it's... there because people chew it for like the uh altitude and stuff like that or uh one of the reasons is the it really helps in the altitude, but uh, the people here they've been adapting to this, uh, to this uh, altitude for 
many, many thousands of, I mean, I don't know, five, more than five, seven, 10,000 years adapting. So physiologically, I mean, it helps to the attitude for to us, but it has also a lot of other uses. Like uh, it is uh, like a very complete uh, food. It gives you a lot of vitamins, calcium. Uh, it has a lot of calcium. And when That's you're, how you say in English. When you're chewing on it, are you basically just, you're not swallowing it, obviously. Are you just getting the juices or how? Do, what, what you, is... you, you take the, the idea is not to, to, to chew as if you're eating. You're just making a bowl and, and pre making pressure using your cheek and your teeth to extract the juice mixed with your saliva. Then uh, that uh, uh, action, the mix of the saliva and the chewing help extracting the alkaloids, the vitamins, the calcium and all the things they have. It has, but it has alkaloids. And you help uh, with, uh, you can use uh, baking soda, but usually in all the Andean reg uh, regions, every region has a, like a type of uh, ash that you add up and it helps to, to the process. It accelerates the process. The, a only the, with ash. Saliva, the ash. Yeah, the ash helps the process of uh, alkaloid ex extraction. Because with only saliva, um, it's uh, it's uh, it's slower than using. You need something alkaline. Right now, doesn't the ash kind of taste a little ashy, or do you get used to the uh, taste? Or it's uh, no, it's really not. Uh, it, it's, it's so many. But it's only a few, but the, the taste of the leaf is so strong. That is, uh, the ash will never be dominant. Oh, okay. Okay. And it's so many, like uh, yam ash, uh, potato ash. Uh, they are using insane stuff. And now there's a new trend in the last few years, which is uh, they, they, they take the leaves and they put ash, they put different ashes, they put mint, they put stevia, they put uh, some coffee. Almost like some of the smoking uh, blends. You, you know. know. And yes, and they smash it. They put leather and they smash it very strong. So it's already mixed up. And that is very, way, way faster. It's incredible. Like the, the, the effect is so immediate. So it's almost like some of those smoking, it, smoking blends. They almost have leaf blends. Basically. Smoking blends. Yes. It's like a leaf blend, though, you know. Yeah, yes. that's pretty wild. Yeah, is that? Yeah, but it's uh, it really helps. If you're not from here, uh, it's uh, very uh, it's very helpful because it helps uh, oxygenate your blood. That's what is why it's good for the altitude because you're you get uh, more uh, able to absorb. Uh, oxygen in an atmosphere where uh, oxygen, you don't have much oxygen. There's lack of oxygen. So you maximize the absorption of oxygen for your system using this. Interesting.
Yeah. Nice. How long have you been in uh, Bolivia now? A while, right? Uh, I arrived here, yeah, in 2007, like definitely, but I started coming in 2004, but I, I, in 2007 I decided to stay with some po uh, short breaks, you know, like going to the States. So I lived in, I went from here to Peru, then came back from here to Colombia, then came back from here to the U.S., then came back and then from Mexico and came back. But you're originally from Argentina, right? Yes, I'm original from Argentina, yeah. So does that work in terms of being able to stay there? Because are, are you still an Argentinian citizen or are you a Bolivian at this point? I am I am officially a, a permanent resident, and I'm I'm able to to do the, the my passport to have a Bolivian citizenship, uh, but it's uh, it's kind of pricey, uh, and I didn't do it, but I'm planning to do it. I want uh, the, but I'm still a, an Argentine citizen. And you. Uh... But you've been you've traveled all over uh, South America, like you were mentioning, uh, digging for records. So you've been to yes. Peru, Colombia, Brazil. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, tell me. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> what are I remember you were telling me? Uh, I think on uh, when I had you on one of my uh, FMU shows, uh, you were talking about like. Uh, digging for records like literally the only you know going by boat <laughs> like you've brought you've been to some pretty crazy uh corners in in south america looking for records right yes yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i i've been since 2003 i've been going uh, moving as much as i can there's a lot of uh, i mean it's there's uh, i i i and i feel i only know I don't know much and my and actually my I didn't travel much to remote areas and I my my search was more in medium uh, cities uh, medium-sized cities or big cities but I traveled to, to small places especially like looking for some uh, people like radio stations or stuff like that right right how did, how, did, how did you kind of like uh, sort of figure out your trips? Like, do you just kind of go to cities and, or do you have like some ideas or some leads before you go somewhere? That... Well, in the beginning, I, I, I'm not originally from Buenos Aires, but I was living in Buenos Aires during the 90s. And early 2000s, I started to, to work in, to organize uh, parties and work with DJs from the Bolivian community in Buenos Aires, uh, and then I I started to know more about music from other other parts in Latin America, and I started to like undo the migrant or, or starting learning from the routes of the migrants in my city, like going, and that was the, like the main path. Oh, so you, you know, kind like, of like just paid attention to how people ended up in Argentina and maybe followed their path, or just the general yes, migrant because, of people. Because in in the in the pre-internet era, or at least the pre-internet era for when I come from, I started like uh, trying to figure out the routes of the people that was trading music in any format, 
at that time it was uh, some vinyl tapes, CDRs, but also they started to use uh, uh, hard drives, right? So, but the, the, the travel was still uh, by bus, by land. So I started to learn from those uh, routes, like, okay, uh, somebody is picking up, bringing some stuff from this place, which was four days by bus, so no, some, uh, there was people like coming from even Lima, which is really far from where, from Buenos Aires. So I started to, to, to do the same, traveling and meeting people. And then, okay, I'll be back in like in six months or in three months. What would you like to me to bring? What I can find for you? Like, uh, and then I realized those, those routes were had like uh, a lot of history, you know, so you you met people like they were old uh, record dealers, uh, record dealers or music dealers that they were doing the same in the whole continent, from Colombia to Peru, from uh, Bolivia to Argentina, from Bolivia to Peru, from Chile to Peru, uh, from Brazil to you know. Uh, I started to realize all those uh, trading routes with music that from the past decades. In the 20th century. That's wild, because obviously, uh, you know, just the influence of music, I know we've talked a little bit about this before, like, uh, you know, like cumbias from Colombia, then making their way to Peru, and kind of getting mashed up with their sounds to make other sounds, but yeah, I guess the, you know, you don't really think about, well, how did those records get down to Peru in the first place? Somebody must have brought some, or, you know, obviously distributed distributors but it probably was a lot trickier back then yeah as you said these routes yeah and also because the it was i mean the these uh, music travelers or music dealers traveling for for uh, so long they were also influencing labels decisions you know because for example uh uh a record dealer or a collect a, a collector or both things at the same time from Colombia would go in the 70s, 80s, would take, a, would, would go by bus to Lima, meet with the dealers there, uh, listening to music and, and taking some records uh, and saying, okay, this, this, this could work in this scene, this other bringing, this dealer would be in contact with this uh, uh, DJ or radio DJ or, or sound system. Uh, person and okay, I have this. Uh, you know, uh, what do you? Uh, how much would you? I, I can give you exclusivity for this. This could work. So that DJ would make this tune famous, and it was uh, a song from a place, you know, far away that was not sounding in the radio or anything. You know, and that style getting popular in some dance scene in some dance floors, you know. Sorry, right. I haven't been practicing my English in, in a few. Don't be silly, man. Don't be silly, uh, you know. But Crazy. you get the idea, right? Like, yeah, yeah, of I course. Think, uh, they, these these, uh, these le the legendary dealers uh, were very important in the spread of the, you know. Spread of the music within South America, etc. Yeah. 
and I'm sure that that happens in many parts of the world, you know. Right, right, and um, and then you know, in terms of like the sound systems too, because that's something that you know you don't hear about too much. Though I know even that happens in New York. I think in more like you know Queens or some of the uh, boroughs, but just the idea of like the sound system culture with like cumbia and Latin American music. If you want, because I know you've played on some of that stuff in Mexico, right? You played with sound yeah. systems. Yes, the, I mean, it can be, talking about sound systems can be a bit confusing because it's too associated with the Caribbean, especially, in right. particularly, like, Jamaican. Jamaican, yeah. Uh, we don't use, yeah, like, uh, it, it can be kind of confusing. Okay. Uh, it's more like, in in Mexico, would be Sonideros. Yeah, which Sonideros. Which I think is the, okay. the, those guys were, like, the most, in my opinion, the most serious uh, diggers in the whole continent is is in a way is where everything uh, uh, ends. Uh, the best of the whole continent, in my opinion, ended up uh, sounding there in block parties. They right. were there. They have these uh, generations of uh, uh, legendary diggers traveling from Mexico City through Central America, the Caribbean, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, even Argentina, like looking for the sound. You know? And what, what, what would be like a typical thing that they, they would be looking for, like the Mexican kind of diggers? And good DJs. music. So uh, they'll play good. all different kinds of styles, like... Because I kind of associated uh, more with all, like sort of slow down of cumbia. A lot but. of different, but uh, of course, cumbia was like the main the main right. sound. But of course, like other uh, San Juanitos in Ecuador, uh, winos, some winos from Peru, uh, and yeah, salsa, and in all its different variantes, variantes, and, and of course, especially cumbia. No? Right, right. And they're kind of also, they, they slowed it down, right? It's almost like a DJ screw effect where they pitch down, <laughs> they pitch down uh, well, the 45s. Whenever, yeah, whenever the, the tune was too fast, they were, they were looking for the, 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 the right speed so people from, from Ciudad de Mexico, in this case, uh, could dance the way they the the style the way they they like to the the speed they like to dance they i mean there there is a different uh, origin of that explanations like there is this legend of some power uh, electric uh, power source uh, running out of power and slowing down the things but i think it was uh, the the capability of pitching down right. the block parties using a special model of a uh, turntable, uh, the, which is uh, mostly Garrard, which had the 16, 33, 45, or I think also 78. Okay. I never right. had one. Yeah, one of the real old so school could, ones that would pay, play the 16 RPM, those gigantic records. And the, and the pitch it would be uh, like in one device, you could... Uh, I mean, it was not a switch between RPM. It was a whole thing doing ah, both. Ah, it was like a whole slide. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So that it was like was a it was like a really like high powered pitch 
thing instead of like a small percentage exactly. it was like a massive oh, thing I got so you had a lot of crazy uh, range. range right exactly so you could find exactly the you know the point is the right speed to play one record yeah even if they, they even if it was a peruvian record in peru the, the artists they would never uh, know that it uh, that their tune was so famous in the antipodes of the americas uh, in the, over the continent all over in Latin America, like pitched in a completely different pitch. And there's cases of some artists that then after the, their song became very popular in these block parties, they were uh, hired to play and they were realizing for the first time uh, or, or singing firsthand how their, 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 their music was played like that. And, and the crowd was asking them to play Play slower. Uh, slow version of <laughs> That's absolutely hilarious. So they basically had no idea, and they basically came to play it at the or normal maybe speed. Told them yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. advance, that they, the way they were, but that's yeah. really that's really wild. That's really wild, and those parties get pretty huge, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's the, like people uh, don't really like, even. It's the biggest. The biggest scene in in Mexico City, which is what I know, I I, I, I don't know much. I, I haven't been in the north of Mexico where the sonideras are very important, uh, but the the dance the, the the block parties are like different and the styles in, in in I think in Mexico City since they 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 got influence for so many, the diversity in in the music is way bigger and important right 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 and uh in terms of like digging in bolivia um i know that you've like uh dug up a bunch of uh kind of bolivian labels but that wasn't necessarily a country that was putting out as much music as colombia or something right but or peru but they still have a lot of records obviously absolutely it was a very very important industry but uh, not uh, not very well known until today outside Bolivia. Yeah, because you uh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, well, I think like there's a kind of a new generation of uh, uh, other non-Bolivian uh, music heads in in Latin America, like uh, listening to this uh, amazing music for the first time now yeah because there's bolivian cumbias and just every style of music there's a lot of uh actually rock and psychedelic stuff too right yeah from 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 folk more folk styles to uh, 60s 70s rock you know uh it's a uh, yeah it's a lot of, there's a lot of uh variety in, but in in term in cumbia like uh, since we are uh, I, I mean I think the the music we've been talking until now has a lot to do with ports with access to the sea if you see like the most uh, the 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 most important uh, you know Lima uh, with the port of the Callao the Barranquilla Cartagena San Paulo Buenos Aires uh, Guayaquil, it, it's um, 
I think the port it was where uh, the the enrichment of of the of the music, uh, and also it's connected with the slave slave trade. Yeah, of course. Where the the is the, are the most uh, like musically the most I think the most important uh, and uh, places in our in our uh, continent. But Bolivia is landlocked, so the influence with the with the so-called tropical music or uh, Latin music, as they, they know in the U.S. and everything, it has to do with the ports a lot. So uh, in in Bolivia, that main that that first wave with the orchestras in 50s, 60s, it's all came from or from Lima influenced uh, or from or Colombian influence. So they had. Little... It took a while. Who have a, like a more uh, Bolivian sound of cumbia, or uh, before that, like more like mambos or dengues, you know? Right, because the ports, in the way you were saying, it, it sort of exchanges all the ideas and kind of like speeds up the thing. So they were just yes. kind of like taking influences from just uh, yeah. Bolivia lost lost the sea access in late nineteenth century. And that uh, that made the foreign influence or, or other uh, Latin American countries' influence made it like more uh, uh, less less uh, massive. Right, right, right. And um, in terms of like uh, you know people collecting records down there, um, do you see it as kind of becoming uh, more popular? You know. Uh, since the time yeah. that you've been digging, because probably at the time you were digging, you know, it was probably still like kind of the CD era and maybe people were sort of forgetting about records. But, hey, you know, the CDR, sort of general yeah. idea of record collecting around the world is that had an influence on even record collectors in Latin America. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a uh, this in the last 15 years, the Internet made it made it very like like wow was this made in my own country 50 60 years ago you know like right so people kind like, of rediscovering stuff on the internet from their own country that yeah. they might not have known about yeah yeah and they start like asking old people like ah you know about this what was this what how was this uh, scene at the time they were like what is what was this music why like what was the influence you know because at that time, uh, especially in a landlocked country, like the access to 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 records was very limited. You asked, you had to ask. Like it would take months for you to have a like, uh, and, and and it was very expensive to ask for an American rock, uh, you know, record, or or you have to go travel to Lima. Or you know, right. there was not much uh, information. Was really short, but you find uh, you know Bolivian bands from the late '60s uh, playing like garage, like really raw uh, rock and roll, and and in the '70s more like prog stuff. But it had to do with certain uh, elite that had uh, access to that information. You know. Right. So do you think like some of those like psych and rock bands were not necessarily kind of coming from um, 
you know, the it was more kind of coming from a sort of elite crowd that had access to those records or the first wave, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. So like if you were like looking at some of those like earlier kind of Bolivian psych rock records, it wouldn't necessarily be like indigenous people, it was people that had access no, to like Rolling first, Stone records generation. and whatever and then Yeah, not uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. People that could uh, travel or or connected with the record labels or and there's so there was also uh, we don't have to forget that we were in the Cold War era. So uh, America was sending, the American labels were sending a lot of promos, you know, to, and, and stuff. Two countries just to sort of sell the yes. Americanness of uh, American culture. But they were like, no, not, not, uh, not, not very popular, like in terms of, it was not a big portion of the music, Bolivian music, uh, you know, industry. Right, right, in the right. Beginning. Right, right. Um, so if you see in the in the in the images, you can see like they were clearly uh, like more white people that could travel, or I don't know, doing. There's even like I don't know, thirteen floor elevators cover versions or stuff. That was stuff that was happening at the same time, and it was it wasn't that mainstream in in America or or Europe, you know. Yeah, or which the then UK. of course garage and etc you know collectors are like oh i need this bolivian version of 13th floor elevators cover but yeah that's kind of interesting that the the people that originally made those records are probably you know they just to even have access to those records is a certain amount of privilege etc you know to, yeah. to even like know about the american garage records to cover in the first place so yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Like it does really come down to distribution. It's very interesting. I don't think that's something that people necessarily think about. They, you know, they might just think like, "Oh, look at this amazing rare Bolivian garage rock record," and not even think about the circumstances of even how it was made in the first place. And uh, another point that I find interesting that, that that now that we are talking about rock was that there. Bolivia, in, in this situation of being uh, landlocked in the middle of South America, uh, when the uh, Peruvian, Argentine, Brazilian uh, rock, uh, English and Portuguese spoken or sung uh, rock uh, started to become important, uh, they were a very protectionist industry, each one of them. But I think Bolivia, he got, they got the influence of what was happening in Lima then, and in Buenos Aires, and in, 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 in Brazil. I think that's very interesting, and not many people talk about much about it. That they, they were taking influence from, you can see that, like, they were making also covers, like, in, in the, already in the 70s, from artists from from the Uruguay, Lima, uh, Buenos Aires, Chile, Brazil. That's uh, that situation of being landlocked in between all that, all those countries made us uh, influence, influences of other Latin American countries at the same time. Interesting. And uh, you were obviously there through the whole recent uh, coup and obviously 
it's nice that uh, those people are finally out of power. But I don't know if you want to talk about some of the stuff that went down <clears throat> when Anya's and the sort of uh, U.S. back coup kind of took power. But uh, I know you were saying that like people were getting jailed for Facebook posts and stuff. It was pretty crazy. So that must have been pretty insane to to go through. Yes. Yeah. It was. Uh... It was very. It took many. It took us to many people. It took us by surprise. Like how well planned was, and they were planning to doing this uh, since a few years. And yeah, it was uh, very repressive. Uh, I mean, so Bolivia doesn't. Have, I mean, we are 11 million people. We had like. Uh, yeah, thousands of uh, detainees, and and there was people, yeah, literally put in jail for organizing WhatsApp groups or uh, or sharing memes. Yeah, and they been in jail for months from that. And I know this is happening in many parts of the world because it's it's part of the same, in a way, the same geopolitical conflict. But they try to apply the. A very repressive plan, but they they didn't they they are these people are so brutal and ignorant uh, that they they were not counting on how the um, the majority of Bolivia could react against it. You know, it was just a a very a small minority of the mostly white elite that ruled the country uh, until 15 years ago, 14 years ago. And they, it was a move to trying to gain back a privileged position uh, in alliance with the, with the worst of the U.S. Right, exactly. Kind of U.S. corporate interests. Yeah, that's insane. And obviously, uh, and they were they kept trying to suspend the elections, basically, because they knew that they were going to lose, essentially. Yes. Yeah, yes. So, and they, they still, I mean, there was a huge victory on the elections in November, but the, the whole structure and all these people and, and the alliances, and they, they, they are not uh, defeated. They're still there. The militaries that they were and the police that were and the, and the corporate and the uh, entrepreneurs from Bolivia that were part of this, they still there, and they still represent a big threat, and it's a it's very it's a very complicated, uh, very weak. Even if the government had that such a amazing results in the elections, I don't think we can. Uh, say uh, claim uh, full victory because this is not solved in elections right right exactly they're kind of like a hardcore element that's sort of willing to do whatever obviously because yeah. i know that they had those massacres too where they just straight up shot people uh yeah. i forget the uh it was near like an oil plant right or something yeah gas yeah, it was a gas plant. Uh, yes, and you you still have uh, many people here defending the the armed forces crimes, and 
and blatantly racist uh, in social media and, and TV and radio, constantly 24-7 saying these were not massacres, this wasn't a coup. Yeah, maybe talk about, because that's, yeah, sometimes I think, you know, especially being in the States, you just don't get a sense of, like, what it actually is like down there. Like, talk about the media in Bolivia. Is it kind of like the corporate media here, where it's just generally kind of terrible and sort of, like, how is, how is, uh, is there any kind of left media that's, that's happening in Bolivia with with these election victories or has uh, been around? Most of the media, they are in hands of uh, this, 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 the money of the, the people that elite, make the kind of, yeah. Yeah. So then it's kind of just typical, whatever, BS. Yeah. And, and there's no, 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 any kind of ethics or, you know, and they don't respect the anti-racism uh, laws that uh, are here. They, I mean, there's no. There's a lot of racism yeah, against like the. No, absolutely no. Well, I'm saying they're they're kind of racist, especially against like indigenous people, right? Yes, which is more than eighty-five percent of the country, the population. You know? Right. So these people keeps uh, control of the media and the discussion and, and everything because they in, in communities uh, and small communities or in the countryside, uh, the the social movements and everything they don't use, they don't do that. They don't make that use of uh, the media. When the coup won. What the, the, one of the first things they did was to shut down all the, the media that was in hands of social movements. More than 50 radios. Yeah, a lot of radio stations I heard got shut down. They were, yeah, they were shut down. So is that, you know, now that, uh, who is it, Luis Arce is, is in power, is, is some of that kind of more socialist, at least radio or media kind of coming back? I think this new government they 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 come in a moment where they 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 so they have so many fronts, you know, so many things to do basically. So many things to do that they are not uh, being they, they like the priority in this moment is like avoiding the, the, the that this happens again like in turn but more focus on on stop the uh, uh, financial coup. Right, like a sanctions type of thing, or we had a, like a internal lockdown, or you know, sabotage, you know. So they they have they have a lot of priorities, and avoid the inflation, and because they they have we have like we had like two pandemics at the same time. We have the first the coup. And then the coronavirus. But imagine, like, if the coronavirus situation or uh, started with the coup, you know, in a way, the, the instructions of the, the like, uh, uh, they took power and they started to uh, take all this neoliberal, like, destroying the country economy basically, and then the pandemics. So this government, 
uh, they Dealing won the election in, in the worst in in the worst uh, one of the worst uh, con possible context. Right, right, right. And even I think you know while the the coup government was in power during the pandemic, kind of like what you see happening here in the states or the UK, they weren't really taking care of people. Like they, I heard they were they were basically any any of the government hospitals they were shutting down. They just, were just taking care of yeah, the private clinics like, or whatever. When you took when you took uh, something by power, it's like uh, like when you when you're a gang and you take over something. You are focusing in the stealing, right? And not on solving anything. And then the pandemic showed up. They were completely unable to. And the, and the, the political, the, it was. Uh, they were not. Uh, they didn't care a lot. So it was more more of a more of a Bolsonaro or a, American style. They were not really. They were just letting things go. You know. Right. Right. It's crazy. They don't care about the people because they made a coup against the people. Right, exactly. So it's like if they if they already like don't really care about the people's, you know, what they want their election results to be, why should they care if they're even alive or not, you know, or or and especially even... because they they see Bolivia, they they see there is a uh one type of Bolivian that deserve that deserves uh, attention and and then then there is the people that they don't they just don't care right right they're just taking care of their own basically mm -hmm. um but yeah and uh i know that um what was uh like ali vargas do you know him i know that like he was he i was, follow him in, in social media but what was the name of uh, his uh news thing Cos uh, yes, it's um, it's, a, it's a radio. It's Kausachun Coca. Yeah, Kausachun. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's based on a region uh, in in the what what we call the tropico. It's a region between both, uh, like in between highlands and lowlands, and it's where the core of the resistance against the coup. Uh, and it was one of the few independent media uh, remained. So, yeah, it was uh, very important. His work was very important and very brave because he was... Uh, now, you remember that there was... Uh, they were targeting people, people basically, right? Yeah, and, and, and threatening him on, uh, on, on, on social media on a daily basis, like very violent. So he started this Causachun uh, uh, news that was because the the media lockout was so blockade was so so big there was no and and most of the corporate even uh, like social center left media in in Europe and then the US they were pro coup in the beginning. Well, yeah, that, that's my point is that they're not very left wing at all. Like if you want to. If you think of like the Guardian or even the New York Times as "quote unquote" liberal, but that's the whole point. Then Liberal it, liberalism yeah, is right wing. Yeah, you know? nice that they were. Yeah, they, and then he he started this uh, uh, sharing some some content in in English of what was going on here. Yeah, which I think is important because it, you know much like in the same way of the news being sort of locked down in Bolivia, then. 
you know, the news that we receive in the States or in the West is sort of filtered through these corporate news sources. And yeah, basically all of them were pro-coup, which makes, you know, again, if if you think like The Guardian is is left or even left leaning, then why are they supporting a fascist coup? And why is like someone like because Evo they Morales? Have a very special, they, they have a clear agenda, like uh, liberal, some sort of left for their own countries or their own alliances. But they have a completely different agenda when they cover uh, international news. Right. Because that's so their that's their backyard are, to take whatever, take the lithium demonizing and whatever. Uh, China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Bolivia. They, the en- they, it doesn't the matter. It's true. <laughs> you know, they, it's, yeah, they are, would never, you know, they don't seek for the truth. They are uh, They are following a clear agenda. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which I'm sure people in Bolivia must kind of get tired. Like, do people in Bolivia actually get, you know, like the New York Times? I guess you can find it on the Internet or whatever. Like, what do people in Bolivia think when they read these sort of pro-coup, you know, New York Times or Guardian headlines? I mean, they got to think like, wow, these people are just uh, full of shit. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it must be really insulting like, if you uh, yeah. if you have these like newspapers that are these kind of world, you know, like we're the sort of world, the most trusted source uh, in the world on news. And then they're just, you know, I mean, are those correspondents even in Bolivia writing those articles, you know? Yeah, that's why the coup was so focused in, in persecuting people telling what was going on here. Yeah, I mean, you see that even now with, like, Twitter kind of, like, banning people that are just sometimes talking about what's going on in their countries because it's it's that's that's not what they want out there. But uh, what yeah. else? Uh, but I felt in the end of the, of the in the end of in the end of this of the coup that there's that there's this last thing I, I uh, they they changed a bit. I think they. The the Agnes government was so so repressive, and it was so clear that they were supporting like uh, criminals that they started to be more quick. They sw- they switched, but in the key moment, I think they they chose the wrong side, or, or they were, you know. Well, I mean, I, like I said, I think a lot of that stuff is on purpose. I mean, there was even news articles when the Amazon was burning. And, you know, people like Bolsonaro or they didn't give a shit. But, you know, Evo Morales was actually trying to do something, but they were trying to pin the Amazon fires on, of course, Evo Morales instead of Bolsonaro. The Amazon Amazon fires uh, were used as a weapon to create a consensus for the coup a few months later. Yeah, it It was sort of like laying laying, laying the groundwork for why... He yes. shouldn't run, and you know, blah blah blah. Yeah, and gain support of young generation of, uh, me, me, you know, uh, uh, Envi- environmentalists. Honest intentions, but they were used. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a term where it's like you're kind of using, you know, those kind of things in an insidious way, you know, like greenwashing. So you're you're using supposed environmental yeah. concerns to then push for something, you know, 
terrible. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It's crazy because it's, it's the, the, the same people that made a coup, they make profit of the fires because they can use that land for for soybeans to feed pigs in China or, so you know, I don't know, whatever. So yeah. they need those fires to extend the border. So it keeps all this colonial, uh, internal colonial, the, pushing the boundaries, killing the people that live there, stealing the land, burning it, and put uh, cattle on it. Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's no morals there. It's just like, it's just some straight, what it, where is the money and how can we extract it in whatever way. Yeah, it's it's insane. It is kind of a crazy world we live in. The music is good though. <laughs> music is uh and are you have you been I mean I guess with with COVID like the rest of us you've probably haven't been playing so many parties but uh you know I no, we, since March 2020 I I right. didn't have any any gig. What 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 were the parties uh like in, in Bolivia? Like what kind of stuff would you play as opposed to like playing say on a you know, in a in a like a sound system type party in Mexico, like how would your sets differ? You know, in terms of playing in Bolivia for like a Bolivian crowd. Uh, after a few years, I I started to push the boundaries more, and and just play whatever I like. I try to always try to go to a point of, of you know to play what I really like. I was doing this monthly party called Humo Mundial, which is like World Smoke or something. Uh, and it was, I was uh, DJing, uh, doing long sets, uh, playing. How long would stuff. you play? Four hours. Nice. Nice. Sometimes more. Between three and five hours. Always starting at midnight and ending up like before five. Amazing. And yeah. and what do people? It was you kind of like just monthly. That's amazing. And they you got you wouldn't have an issue with like going late, like uh, you know, like do they have like sort of uh, you know, kind of like in the states where you can't serve at a certain bar, where they be at spaces? What like describe some of these parties? Yeah, it's uh, officially here. You you have to stop two, three uh, in the city of La Paz. Uh, I think each city decides. But then uh, after that, you have to maybe turn down the volume. Maybe not letting anymore and not uh, or closing the door, uh, not making too much. But then you can continue you know, in some places. Nice, nice. And you would just play a lot of different styles of music, or yeah, most like all over Latin America and what I can find about because it was an uh, uh, all vinyl mostly party and music from West Africa mostly and the Caribbean and Latin America. Nice, nice. So yeah, because I remember I I went to Carnival in Colombia once in Barranquilla, and obviously because of uh, you know I didn't realize that until I I you know gotten there, but that was like a port for the slave trade, and there was a lot of influences uh, that sort of Afro-Colombian kind of uh, influences. Yes, you know. So 
they, they have a, a, a long tradition of uh, African playing African and knowing about the African music and and also with the with the Colombian uh, Afro-Colombian style. Right. And did, did, did you but they know they, they have huge collectors so, and 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 the Pico scene that is uh, has a long decade history of like serious seriously digging and going to Africa to look for records, trading and starting producing also uh, their own version of it. Right, right. And are some of those sounds like uh, popular in Bolivia or is that kind of like more regional to like northern Colombia? Uh, after this uh, uh, last uh, boom of Colombian artists being known uh, outside of, of Colombia, maybe the most commercial uh, side, they, 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 they get to know, and especially with the radio and the, and the internet, knowing more about uh, Champeta. Yeah, Champeta. That's what I was thinking of. I couldn't remember yeah, the yeah. name of it. Champeta, exactly. Yeah. Nice, nice. Uh, and uh, in terms of like, ding, I know there was like some issues with like mailing and stuff. Are you still like selling a lot of stuff to online or, you know, are you still traveling like and trading? No, no, we have, uh, there's no post anymore. Uh, since also since the, the coup, the situation got really crazy. And then with the pandemics and there was a, the, the post service is not working. And in this month, was not working, not even uh, domestically, so by post. So I cannot send uh, or, re or or receive packages of with people that I also trade records. There's no no way to get. You dip, you rely on the few people that travels and asking, ah, can you, could you bring me these uh, ten singles, <laughs> or could you take this, you know? Right, right. And organizing all this. Or or sending I don't know someone you know it's all by land or relying on, on people on on the few people that travels right because I know that you'd come to the states to to even like with bringing a bunch of records to kind of sell a few times so yeah I would I would combine the the the, the gigs and okay and taking also this stuff for trading and for shipping and stuff I want to sell yeah. But uh, that's the way now. You have to go somewhere else to, so to trade. I mean, that's kind of insane record. as a record seller to, that uh, you can't use the post. That's I don't again another yeah, it's, it's, another uh, thing that I don't think people necessarily think about. No, it's uh, it's really bad, and um, but the, the the there is so much uh, bigger problems than that. Well, yeah, no, of <laughs> course you know, I don't. Like... There is much bigger problems. <laughs> I know, but hey, since we are record nerds, it's it is a problem. Yes, no, you're right. I mean, I guess that's the thing. As you were saying, the government is dealing with so many fronts, so to speak, that uh, yeah. you know, you not being able to ship some weird Brazilian, I mean Bolivian, uh, psych record to somebody in Germany is probably the least of their worries. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and I I bet they think that now in a, in a, in in first world like. This uh, this thing of getting a when you're locked down, when you have to stay at home for months, like having this little box 
with one record you've been waiting for uh, one month and I'm packing it and listening to it a few times. It's like, you know, but this, uh, but here is, uh, you know, that is not possible anymore. Yeah, yeah. But on the, on the other hand, we were used to to such a crazy situation, you know, like I, you know. Oh, yeah. I think it was a good time also to release what I already have and maybe I gave it only one listen or not paid much attention. So it's a good chance to give a chance to a lot of stuff you have sit there and listen and re-listen and, and see how your ears behave, you know? Yeah, it's kind of funny sometimes when you're you're digging and, you you know, you might listen to something quickly and be like, okay, this is cool, I'm going to buy it or whatever, but that you could kind of forget about it. So it is like you can, you know, I call it shopping at home. Like you kind of sometimes forget what you own and it's good to just re-listen and be like, oh, okay, that's good or okay, this is mediocre, maybe I should just sell it or whatever. But I think that's very important to uh, spend time and just re-listen to things that you have because your tastes also change. Maybe something you bought yes, a while absolutely. ago that you might thought, oh, that's okay, but now you might listen to it now. Because I know you collect a lot of uh, folklore music from yes, various yes. countries, so which sometimes, you know... I like, uh, I like uh, of this uh, moment is that also that triggers more a uh, local trade of records. Right, okay. In terms of, like, you know, selling to Bolivians themselves as opposed to somebody on the internet. And there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of trade, you know? Right, right. What are, what are some of the kind of folkloric styles Once. that you like to collect? Uh, I mean, yeah, mostly the guaños, tonadas, um Music from the valleys of Cochabamba, that was the core of this, uh, that, that, you know, we were talking about construction news and, you know, I think that the region had a, an amazing, has an amazing music, but it's very local, not even well known in major cities. And that, that was what I was uh, trying to, to listen the most, you know. Cool. Um, I yeah. don't know. Anything else that you wanted to mention? Uh, yeah, it's like, uh, it's also, I mean, DJs, we cannot afford, we, the, we have no gigs. We cannot afford most of the cases, you know? So I think it's a good moment to figure out, you know, other ways and right. maybe try to uh, to get rid about this vinyl only fetishism because we are uh, losing sight of a lot of amazing music that it's in an other format yes i agree actually you know? that uh you know as much as i love vinyl and appreciate the stuff i have or whatever it's there is just so much music out there uh and not all of it even gets pressed on wax or whatever. I know that you also, uh, you kind of follow some yeah. of the more modern electronic variations in Latin American music. And not all that stuff gets pressed on wax either, you know. Yeah, not at all. Not like a, a very, like almost like a none of it. <laughs> yeah. 
Because so, is, there's not a lot of, pre- is there a lot of pressing plant? Like, is there pressing plants really in Bolivia? I mean, I knew, I Latin assume. Latin America, not in Latin America. Like, maybe there is one in like Brazil, Brazil sure. another in, in Mexico. You know, but this is like such a huge continent. There's a lot of music and we are losing sight of amazing music being made now. And I think one of the consequences, at least in this part of the world, would be like a less fetishism on the music of the past and and uh, and more open up more of what is going on right now yeah because the problem i think with just strictly collecting vinyl is you do kind of get into these mindsets of certain time periods and it does yeah. kind of ignore the present because in the present people may not have the means to press what they're doing on wax so that if you're only listening yeah. to stuff on vinyl you're going to miss out on what is actually going on in the present. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the point that the most important thing is the, the music itself, you know? Yes, exactly. That is, that's real talk right there. That's from someone who has insane, insane records. But uh, I think that actually <laughs> is, no, but that's the proper attitude. It's that, you know, it really... As beautiful as it is to find original pressings of stuff that's like really cool music, it's it is in the end about the music, you know. Yep. And uh, what do, what do you think for the the mix? Uh, I it's been I'm in the middle of the moving. I need to move. Uh, my contract is over. Okay. So the rent is probably gonna because. Um, We've been paying half of the rent. Right. Uh, so, but now, when if you sign up, if you sign a new contract, then the landlords are racing to compensate that. You know? Ah, I see. Wow. So you have to move. Uh, so all, you're gonna have to move I'm all moving, your stuff. Um. Yeah. So I I've been like, uh, you know, take. Uh, I'm a bit overwhelmed, uh, but I I will come up with something. Where are you gonna move to? And I'm, uh, it's like uh, 15 blocks from here. Okay. But it's uh, it's just one room. Ah, I see. No living room. It's just one room, like kind of a big room. Okay. Uh, I have to fit everything there. Okay. Uh, but it has a, a huge roof. Oh, nice. And after one year of being locked, yeah. locked in, uh, I really want a roof, so right. I'm, I'm I'm choosing to go to a to be in a very tight place, but I can I will I will I will have the chance to breathe under the sun, you know, without being outside in this madness. No? Right, right, right. While 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 we're waiting for the vaccine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, right. It's going to take a long time. We are very ahead in the queue of the vaccine, so I think it's a good move to to have a, a rooftop. Yeah. To have some sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For health, for mine, mine health reasons too. Yeah, no doubt, man. It's been a mess. I mean, so many people have died in the States, as you can see. It's yeah. just like they've handled it so badly. It really makes me angry. But I mean, that's what I'm. Did posting. you? Did you lose? Did you lose friends? No, luckily. I mean, my parents just lost an old friend. Uh, so I've known a few people 
that have died, but not really been that close to them. But friends of mine have lost friends, especially people who grew up in New York. So they have more of their, ex- like my most of my extended families in California. But for people who grew up in New York, so they might have old aunts and uncles that live in New York, like, because it hit New York really hard, like, say, yeah. last April, you know, April, May, it hit New York. Like, it was like sirens all weekend, dude. Like, you'd be in your apartment in Brooklyn hearing sirens for like 10 hours a day. It was very, it was like bad science fiction, you know? Uh, yeah, same here. So now it's like a little bit better, but it's still bad. It's still really bad. And then you have other states that are kind of like, you know, the the problem is they leave it up to each individual state, right? So then some of the governors that are more Republican or right wing, they don't give a fuck. So they're like, open everything, you know, don't wear masks, open everything like Florida and Texas, you know. And uh, even Democratic governors, like Cuomo is a Democrat in New York, and the California governor is Democratic, but they're also still just very, you know, let's open the schools, let's open dining. So, and then there's no real help to regular people, there's no rent relief, so... You know, it kind of forces either some people to work or whatever, you know. So we'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, it's just I'm I'm very upset by the whole thing just because it's just so many people have died. It's 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 needless. Like if you look at other countries, you know, like Vietnam or China, like it's literally just a fraction, you know. So what it says is kind of what we were talking about with uh, some of the, you know, Bolivian government is like at least the coup government, is that they don't care. Like, they literally don't care that, you know, in the States, half a million people have died. You know, it's like we have, like, the 9-11 memorial, right? Because 3,000, 4,000, like, we have that every fucking day. We have 9-11 every fucking day. Like, two, 3,000 people die every fucking day. Yeah. Unfucking and real, man. Seen- What's the vaccine situation in New York in New York State? Well, I think like you know they got the like Pfizer, so they have Pfizer and Moderna have like uh, you know, but they you know the government's like paying for it, so it's not like uh, and um, they're 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 sort of they have like a list, so it's like the people that are like say if you work in a hospital or you're of a certain age, then they're kind of like. You know, like a friend of mine is a teacher, so she got the vac. She got her first round of vaccines. Um, I might actually qualify just because of my WFMU show. You know, there was a, a conversation going on on the FMU list about how because we're broadcast, we're broadcasters, so you know we sh- we might be in line, but I don't know. But yeah, it's there's like- other. More urgent. uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, otherwise it's like, yeah, the way that they're rolling it out, it's like people are not going to get vaccinated till the summer or fall or whatever. So then at that point, you know, it might mutate and you still, you know, yeah, the thing is, even if you get vaccinated, you still may be able to get get the you you might get the disease. It's not going to affect you because you have the vaccination. Hopefully, assuming the vaccination works, but you might still be able to pass it to people. 
So that's another aspect is that, you know, people who are vaccinated, they may start to be very... It's a temporary... Well, they might be temporary, very, like... Ca- yeah, they might be very cav- cavalier about... <laughs> they might be like, well, I'm, I'm not going to get sick because I have the vaccination, so I'm going to wander around and do whatever the fuck I want. But they might be able... They might still spread the disease, even if it doesn't affect them. Because, you know, who's to say that... If you get vaccinated, you might get the disease that doesn't affect you, but you might be able to pass it to someone else. So I don't know. You know, like I said, I'm not like completely versed in all this shit. I know that like I think in Bolivia, they're trying to get the Russian vaccine, right? The Sputnik 5 or whatever. Yes. So uh, hopefully with your government now, is- like now, hopefully, you you know, they'll they'll at least uh, try to take care of it better. I mean, that that goes without saying, since the last government. That's, was that's the idea. Yeah. It depends on yeah the, the production, the capacity of production. Of, I hope I hope so. Yeah, that we need the the, the Russian vaccine uh, was just. Uh, they were criticizing it a lot, not only because it's Russian. Well, of course, because it's because Russian. They, they, but, uh, but also because they didn't publish in, you know, respect, respectable uh, science uh, magazines and stuff. But it's uh, the most uh, respected, the, mo- the most important uh, UK magazine for science, which is The Lancet. I think it's an like an institution. Right, right. Too uh, effective, ninety-two percent effective. Yeah, yeah, that's what's been going on. They, that's the, more than a condom. The Lancet, yeah. That's more than a that that's more efficient than a condom uh, efficiency, you know, for pregnancy, which is a lot. Right, uh, right. You have to. Uh, so. But the, the the thing is that they are being very slow in the production. They don't have the capacity, the production capacity for the demand they have. Right. And another thing is that this vaccine doesn't need the, uh, the refrigeration system that Pfizer needs. Yeah, Pfizer has like some crazy thing where it has to be like, minus 70 or something centigrade which is almost yeah. like absolute zero or it's heading so it, you you can't like i think even within the states like some rural hospitals may not have the refrig i mean you need like serious refrigeration like yeah imagine imagine most of the world yeah it's not possible to have right that right and the uh, and uh, so we cannot afford that yeah, There's that's no... that's kind of twisted. I, I was thinking even within the states, but you're right. In in the rest of the world, they probably don't have a uh, the the refrigeration capacity to keep a a vaccine like that from being expired or whatever. That's twisted. Yeah. yeah. Here, the only uh, uh, maybe a one laboratory or one one out of ten hospitals maybe has that. So uh, the, the, the Russian vaccine doesn't need, it needs one third of the refrigeration amount. Right, right. Which is good. Right, right. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting so, that to even make a vaccine like that and market it with that kind of refrigeration, you kind of know in advance if you're making these vaccines, you probably know what hospitals are capable of. So you know in advance that there's going to be certain aspects, rural, poor people that are not even going to be able to use your vaccine. That's kind of twisted. It, it becomes a, a tool for manipulation. Right. Because then, okay, uh, you want my vaccine? Okay. Uh, I will send you this. It's like, a, I don't know, like, a, you know, um, yeah, if I give you this, I can give you this with the whole infrastructure, but I want this, this, and this. There's, that kind of help doesn't come, uh, you know. Yeah, well, that's the thing about, like, uh, something with, like, Western, quote-unquote, aid is, it, there's always strings attached. It's like, you know, if, we'll give you the vaccine, be, just hand over your lithium or whatever. <laughs> yeah, or you give me a, you know, you hire my people, the people I want, you you give me this, you give me the contract for this and that and that. It's like, a, I don't know, after a, a war or something, you know? Yeah. Well, it's gangster shit. I mean, that's how these people operate. It's kind of gangster shit, you know? So it's very interesting to see this uh, geopolitical thing with the uh, vaccines, yeah, the I mean, vaccine wars. Yeah, it's kind of the concept of what is it, shock doctrine, that they kind of use these um, these calamities as a as yet another tool to advance their interests. You know, which again, it's kind of morally just despicable. It really is some low shit. You know, when people are dealing dealing with a pandemic and trying to limit, you know, their population from dying or take care of people. And then you have this other person like, well, we could save these people, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> Just gangster shit. Yeah. Gangster shit. So but, we uh, hope the, the Russian can, uh, you know, make their production bigger, but we also need agreements with them to have the capacity to produce, you know, the more advanced countries in the region in terms of science or investment on South science, which in the South are probably Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. They they need to make their own factories of vaccines. They need they they are working on agreements with Russia to start producing it here. Okay, so the same vaccine. So instead of just importing it from Russia, just being able to set up a factory to, you know, make that within their own countries. I mean, obviously that makes sense. And that's what that's what the UK and the US doesn't want to happen. Because, for example, if this government, if the Argentine government, they 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 start they or Cuba, they they start to produce their own factory and and save their people. They they will be more uh, they independent. They will, they will have less. They will be yeah. They will have less power to man manipulate them. Yeah, I mean a lot of it. Like I said, it's used as a tool to kind of like uh, you know control. I mean that to me is like also even a lot of the IMF type loans or whatever. It's you know because that's what's kind of interesting is sort of Ecuador is kind of coming up now with a potential left leaning candidate. 
And obviously Moreno is like very neoliberal, kind of just tool of the U.S. I mean, he, he handed over Julian Assange, et cetera, and he's taken out all these yeah. IMF loans. So, you know, they want they don't want a government that's going to come in and say, fuck your IMF loans, because they want to use that as yeah, a way what to they did control. In Ecuador, yeah, they in a way they, they try to do the same thing here, but the. They in Ecuador they they went more with the lawfare in Ecuador in Brazil they went more they could they could they were they, 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 that doctrine was more successful right and let's not forget that in in Brazil there will be elections next year right so there's a whole kind of tide and Bolsonaro obviously is not very popular I think so there could be a tide in terms of Brazil also moving at least a little more leftward. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's see how your new president or at his new administration, uh, I mean, we already know what, he's, he's, what position. Uh, we already know. Because I mean, I he's still, he's still saying, end, he's still saying, up, go ahead. Sorry. They will, end, I, they will probably end up supporting Bolsonaro for a geopolitical reason. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, Biden has already still said that he still recognizes Juan Guaido, so, you know, for Venezuela. So that shows you how much of a joke, you know, again, there's a very, as you said, in terms of even the newspapers, there's very little difference in foreign policy between the two parties in the U.S., you know, even if obviously yeah. Trump and the GOP are more obviously fascist. When you look at especially the foreign policy of the Democrats, it's it's exactly the same. They, you know, they also were for the coup, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, even Bernie has talked shit about Maduro and, you know, Chavez. So it's like, you know, they don't they they kind of still, you know, they're still imperialists, you know. Yeah. And it's impossible to get to power in the U.S. if you don't do that. Yep, exactly. I feel like you can't really be a politician if you are not, you know, you know, chugging some of that imperial Kool-Aid. You know, you have to lick some of the boots. You, you can't say that Israel is an apartheid country. Yeah, you can't say that Maduro is good. You just, you know, the people that are in charge will do everything they can to make sure you don't get elected. You know, yeah, and also all these things that they have in America with the donors, the people that 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 backs you financially. Well, they yeah, they don't want anything exactly. to change. Well, that's how do you, you know? They it's pay to play. It's like we're backing you so that you will adopt these kind of policies, so that you know we're backing you so that you're not going to speak up for Palestine or you're not going to say anything good about Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua. That's why we're backing you. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's still, it's kind yeah. of an extension of this kind of colonialism, you know, because like I think even America, it's like the, the concept of like the Monroe Doctrine, where Central and South America are, are quote unquote backyard. And I mean, I don't think yeah. I don't think people in Central or South America, you know, elected the u.s to be okay yeah we're just the backyard of the u.s you know i mean i don't uh, it's always something that's self-declared from these kind of countries you know yeah anyways anyways you've been listening to 
Small Changes, Stark Reality, on jasoncharles.net. To hear the exclusive Stark Reality playlist from Sonido Martinez, check out episode 25 of Stark Reality on Mixcloud, Apple Podcasts, and live and direct on jasoncharles.net, Podcast Network, Music Channel. For more information about Sonido Martinez, check out at Sonido Martinez on Instagram. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.